Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Anna Tarrant is a Professor of Sociology at the University of Lincoln, where she is also Director of the Centre for Innovation in Fatherhood and Family Research. Anna is the author of Fathering and Poverty, which was published in 2021, and Men, Families, Poverty, Tracing the Intergenerational Trajectories of Place-Based Hardship, which was published 2023 alongside Professor Karen Hughes. Anna is also the Chair of Trustees for the North East Young Dads and Lads Project. Anna, good morning. Welcome. Thank you for joining us to talk about this really important topic around the importance of grandparents and other kinship carers. So I think we'll we'll start off. Nice, simple question. Can you define what a kinship carer is for everyone, please? Yeah, of course. So I think we all know what grandparents are and grandparents are most highly represented among kinship carers. And kinship care is basically when a friend or a family member looks after a child who's unable to live with their parents for for whatever reason. That might be through a parental death. It might be through parental incapacity to look after a, a child, usually around neglect or abuse. And essentially, they're people who step up to, to raise those children, often in, in those crisis situations, to prevent them from going into local authority care. I use the language of stepping up there. There are sometimes circumstances where children are left on people's doorsteps with family members. And those grandparents or family members have very little opportunity to, to make an informed decision about the take on of, of that unanticipated care. But essentially, half of kinship carers are grandparents, but other relatives may also step in. So that might be older siblings, it might be aunts, uncles, cousins, and and sometimes family friends. But in general, social workers or the state will look to grandparents. There's also different arrangements associated with kinship care. So there are informal arrangements, which can be made between the carer and the parent. Or it may involve legal orders, such as a child arrangements order, a residence order, or a special guardianship order. In some cases, the local authority of the child is involved in placing the child with the kinship carer, in which case the kinship carer becomes a foster carer until an initial assessment is completed. They'll then go through a full assessment and their status as a foster carer will remain until a legal order is granted. And then that gives them parental responsibility for the child and or the child is returned to the care of their parents. So essentially, it's a family relationship that becomes part of a state intervention and I think that's a really core part of kinship care because very often in order to secure the resources that they need to provide care for a child grandparents have to identify themselves as a kinship carer yeah and then it becomes a policy and a political identity for those people and then with that comes a whole range of different questions or or kind of transitions around how people then make sense of their identities, how they make sense of their family identities and their relationships, both with their children and their grandchildren in often complex and emotionally difficult ways. 
Absolutely, yeah. I was going to say complex was the thing that kind of came to mind there. Because I suppose when you think about traditional family makeup and then if there's a, a, a need for a kinship carer to step in or step up, as you as you say, then things kind of get a bit more complex or a bit more layered. And that can be, I imagine, difficult for the grandparents to think about their identity then, but then also the child as well to think about their identity and their family makeup and and what goes along with that. So yeah, I suppose we'll unpack that as we go through. (laughs) But I understand from some of your research that since the introduction to the Children's Act in 1989, kinship care has become an expanding placement option for children in the UK. And I know we were talking about it there becoming a bit more of a political issue then at that point. So how prevalent are kinship carers in the UK? So um, that's not as straightforward to answer as it should be, which is perhaps surprising. But essentially, stats aren't uniformly generated. In part, that's linked to the fact that there might be lots of informal arrangements going on that the state's not aware of or might not be picked up in statistics. The most recent data we have is actually, believe it or not, the 2011 census. And at that point, there were just over 11.3 million children aged between 0 and 18 living in England who were known to be living in a kinship care arrangement. So of those, an estimated 152,911 children were living in kinship care, which is approximately one in 74 children in England. Wow. Analysis of the census data again in 2017 indicated that there were around 180,000 children in the UK living with members of their extended family. And that's more than double the number of children in foster care, just to give a kind of, you know, a relative perspective of that. The kind of broad research consensus is that that's probably an underestimate as well of the number of kinship care arrangements. And I just want to make the point, really, that once we start to develop analyses of that through the the more latest census data, my hypothesis is and my suspicion is, is that that will have risen very significantly. You know, so 2011 marked you know, three years after the global economic crisis in the UK, we've since had a sustained decade of austerity and other political and global health crises, COVID-19 pandemic. And we know that there's been a rise in child poverty as well. And there are confirmed links between the prevalence of kinship care and, and living in low income or poverty circumstances. So the fact that poverty has risen, I think we can fairly safely assume that the number of people living in in kinship care may also have risen as well. But there's much more research to be done on that. And I think that's both statistical in terms of making sense of the prevalence of those numbers, but then also qualitative as well. There is some research attention to kinship care placements, how they're experienced by children and by kinship carers themselves. But in the general kind of focus on, on grandparent grandparents as family members and on children in out of family care our knowledge base is is much smaller and we know less about this really significant placement this invisible placement really than I'd like (laughs) yeah no definitely and I I think the it is the the qualitative part is so important because like you're you're talking about really kind of big important things to that person like identity and and makeup and how they make sense of those things and those I think statistics are great for population-wide and so you can really get an idea. I'm shocked that 2011 is the, the last number we have. But like you say, if it's an informal agreement with the family, then it might not be recorded. And I suppose, yeah, there might be a discussion there about how we manage to capture that data a bit more accurately. But yeah, I think in terms of qualitative, to find out about people's experiences and how they make sense of that, I think that is also really, really important. And I, I know actually that's leading on to my own 
research in terms of working with parents and families and I did a lot of, of qualitative work with parents and some of whom were also grandparents at the time I was working with them and I know that actually there can be quite significant generational differences in terms of parent and practices discipline I think a common phrase that I heard with the parents I worked with but also with my own grandparents as well back in my day or this wouldn't have happened in my day or whatever they might be saying so yeah can you speak to how those generational differences might play a role in the family dynamic yeah certainly I think first of all it's important to observe those differences you know they do exist yeah Um, and again you know think about my own relationship with my grandparents you know (laughs) certainly from a political point of view I have quite different views I think on society (laughs) than perhaps my my grandparents and especially my grandfather who likes the Daily Mail. <laughs> but what's so lovely about that is that we have a, a strong bond and we have a, a lovely relationship and he's an incredibly caring person and we're able to push back on certain things that he that we don't agree with. <laughs> and and he's, he's very open to that. And certainly in the research literature, those family dynamics have been often kind of theorised in relation to either intergenerational conflict or ambivalence. And those are things that are very much worked out, I think, across the sort of parenting, grandparenting transition and journey, and are things that grandparents work out with their grandchildren. And I think we often assume a kind of unidirectional kind of learning relationship between grandparents to grandchild or Mm -hmm. grandparent to parent. But actually, what's happening is much more dynamic. And, And grandparents also learn from their grandchildren as well. So I think that's a kind of really important element of kind of age integration, if you like, in society that again, we we don't really talk about very much. I also think that on that basis, you know, um, and, and based on my own research with grandfathers, which was my doctoral study that I conducted in 2011, that we're seeing that in parenting styles. So the men who I interviewed were predominantly in quite, quite resourced middle class families. They engaged in what's been called again in the research literature as, as leisure pleasure grandparenting. Mm-hmm. So that's like occasional occasional childcare and or, you know, time spent as three generations so with parents and children. And those men, you know, they they were retired predominantly and they were saying, you know, I've really changed my perspective on on parenting and how I think about my interactions with my own children and my grandchildren. You know, I'm seeing my son changing nappies and I was never really okay to do that because culturally speaking, men didn't do those activities um, or certainly it wasn't kind of the norm. So being able to see them do those activities to engage with their grandchildren and care for them in those really intimate ways was actually a revelation for them. And they say, you know, they reflect, I've, I've really kind of missed out on the time with my own children that I can now make up for with my grandchildren. And that's a safe space for them to be able to do that. And it's a space where they're really observing these cultural shifts towards involved and engaged fatherhood, which we know is 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 beneficial to everyone in the family and beneficial to society really because it's about commitment to care so there are complex dynamics of course and you know there are cases where parents and and grandparents perhaps have more challenging dynamics or where there's more tensions but I think in general it's a space for learning for all generations that perhaps we don't get in a pretty age segregated society really I think you know the way our institutions work and the way our families now work or don't work very often we're not we don't interact together as different generational cohorts so grandparenting and, and family relationships are an important way in which that does happen and in which generational change and biographical change can be observed over time 
Yeah, I, I really like the way that you you phrase that kind of age integration in that it's not it's kind of it is a bi directional kind of learning experience, and I know I've had very similar conversations that you had with your participants that I've had with mine, where yeah, it, it's such a lovely space for them to reflect on their own parenting practices, and then I know a lot of my from my own research, the grandparents that I worked with, male and female, talked about they almost seen their relationship with their grandchild is like a do-over or like a a chance to maybe right some wrongs that they maybe through reflection on their own parenting and watching their child parent their grandchild were thinking oh I maybe wasn't as attentive or I didn't and again I think that's a very generational thing especially for men to be really open with their emotions and talk about their feelings and and I know that through that kind of self-reflection space and that learning they've thought actually I'm going to be more open with my grandchild about these things and I'm going to talk about how I feel and I encourage them to do the same and be open and I think that's such a it was a really wholesome kind of thing to hear is that actually they're they're changing as they go through and I, I think that's a really a really nice space and a nice thing that you can see happen in those kind of family dynamics and thinking about I suppose that this is we've talked about really positive things but if we think about also some challenges that grandparents and kinship carers face can you talk about I suppose generally challenges that grandparents might face that have that kind of leisure pleasure relationship and then talk maybe more about challenges that grandparents and kinship carers might face when they've got their the, the child full-time yeah certainly I mean yeah as you might expect I think kinship carers you know have a whole raft of distinctive challenges that they have to sort of navigate with and on behalf of their grandchildren I mean certainly you know in terms of the sort of more leisure pleasure grandparenting you know there might be concerns about kind of being over relied upon for childcare, for example trying to manage care for for grandchildren with care for their own parents, you know, we've got an ageing society. We're very often now living in four or five generational families. And certainly there's been some interesting research on the sandwich generation. So on women particularly who are taking on or expected to take on all sorts of care responsibilities and to balance all of those sometimes alongside working as well. And of course, very often that's unpaid labour as well. And come back to that a bit later when we talk a bit more about why we need to think about grandparenthood I think but there's a you know huge assumption I think that certain family members will will take on all of that care and that becomes very privatized and it becomes very individual to families and there's a risk that that kind of lets the state off the hook a little bit as well in terms of how that's financed and funded so I think for particularly for kind of these more middle maybe more middle class or resourced families it's that navigation and, and balance of work care responsibilities across the life course that becomes a key challenge in terms of kinship care you know this is not a normative family living arrangement so it's and when I say normative you know it's it's not expected you know we expect that most families look like two parents and and a child so it's a huge adjustment I think you know both for for children and for their carers we know for local authorities it's an attractive way of reducing numbers of children coming into care or remaining in care and we also know predominantly from the research that actually children in kinship care do fare well in those placements but less so relative to children in the population at large. So for for children, you know, very often they have emotional and behavioural challenges and difficulties. When they go into that placement, they may be grieving, they may have lost a parent, either through death or, or through forcible removal. They may have been brought up in impoverished circumstances. You know, there's a whole host of reasons linked to social inequalities 
that mean that their grandparent has to become a, their carer. So they also, you know, then have to adjust to going to school and, and maybe not being in a, a, the same sort of family situation as their children. So they may be managing the stigma of that arrangement and that placement as well. And very often they're doing that, you know, without a huge amount of, of emotional support, again, from the state or from other agencies. So then that comes down to the grandparent or it comes down to the family network. And, you know, those grandparents are then adjusting to an often as I say unanticipated arrangement you know for them it can disrupt their sort of future plans there's lots of grandparents or grandfathers that we talk about my colleague and I Karen Hughes talk about in our book Men, Families and Poverty where these men basically result in having a breakdown ultimately because you know they've retired or they've left work early for from ill health or for whatever reason because you know the factories have closed down they're then expecting to have a retirement of some kind and then suddenly they're taking on children again at a very young age and have the prospect of another you know 15 16 years of caring for a child and with that of course comes a whole host of, of implications around whether your house is big enough whether it can actually whether you can actually sustain a, a, a larger family again when you didn't expect to and didn't plan to obviously there's material implications for that having the right furniture you know I've, I've spoken to people in kinship care circumstances where they've been living in the same bedroom as their grandchildren initially because the house is too small but that's the best the best placement available at that time so often they might be living in overcrowded conditions. We know, again, as I say, that, that kinship carers are more likely to be disadvantaged, particularly compared to unrelated foster carers. So they might be caring alone. They might already be experiencing financial difficulties. They might have a disability or a chronic health condition themselves, you know. So they're facing a whole host of challenges linked with poverty and, and, and inequality and exclusion and then taking on this incredibly vital role. I think the other thing that's really distinctive to kinship care is, again, that interaction with the state. So they, if they're going to secure resources that they need, and that might be financial, it might be housing, it might be, you know, just even accessing nappies. You know, there yeah. are situations yeah. where babies are dropped with families and they don't even get nappies, you know, and then, then having to go to the shops and, and do all of that work unexpectedly, you know. So um, they're having to engage with all these systems and services and in a very particular way. A lot of kinship care grandparents haven't had those interactions with the state, so they don't necessarily know the languages to use to enable them to get the resources they they need. I've also spoke to one one grandfather who in my study called Men, Poverty and Lifetimes of Care, and I've published his story in my book Fathering in Poverty. And because he was a man, he really struggled to get a secure placement and become the the, the, the kinship carer. Um, so in that situation, the a very, very um, premature baby was sent home with a maternal grandmother. She'd had a history of, of child children removed and the child started showing signs of neglect and abuse. So we had green stick fractures and, you know, very, very poorly. And he kept raising concerns with social services. And they said, look, we can't prove it was you or them. So we do need to go through the assessment process. And he understood that. He felt that that was really vital because it was important to him that the system worked effectively to support the grandchild. And later, he just had to draw on his kind of cultural capital, really, to get support of his grandson so he was a local community well known in the local community he was a boxing coach he was also a taxi driver and he knew lots of people in the community and he basically said look you know this grandchild of mine is, is being abused I'm really capable as a as a carer and it wasn't until he got to the courts that he was able to demonstrate that capacity so again there's a whole host of kind of gendered and age-based interactions going on in these circumstances. 
you know, some some kinship carers might be deemed to be too old as well. So actually, they want to keep their grandchildren in in family context, but they're too old. I had a, an interview with a, a great grandfather who was 72 and was caring for a two year old and a four year old. And he said, I feel like I'm too old for this. You know, yeah. I I'm kind of becoming more physically immobile and I've got a, he had the resources he had a house a big house and you know he'd had a, a secure stable sort of work history and everything but was becoming more frail so his biggest fear was what happens to those children you know if I can't look after them anymore you know so you're managing all of those really complex emotional material you know financial all of those factors in in making longer term decisions um, often very in a very quick period of time as well yeah definitely and like you said you know it's that all those challenges as well and this was the the physical component like you say it might be they had no plan or intention to raise a a two-year-old or a four-year-old at at that kind of stage in their life and or very different from what they'd maybe I suppose most grandparents would imagine that kind of leisure pleasure dynamic more so Mm -hmm. than a full-on care dynamic so yeah a lot of a lot of things to think about and like you say in very quick succession it's obviously going to happen right then and there and no one's going to want to see their grandchildren put into care rather than staying with them but it's I can imagine can be a very difficult decision based on all other factors. I should say just to add so Karen's work in particular Karen Hughes um, she's a professor at the University of Leeds so the way that she started to conceptualize that kind of grandparenting was rescue and repair. Okay. So whereas you have kind of leisure pleasure grandparenting which is more informal and, and childcare based typically in in sort of more resourced or middle class families what we were seeing or what she was seeing in her research and with colleagues on low-income grandparenting was rescue and repair. So they're often rescuing children from very challenging circumstances and, and sets of relationships and then over time investing in the repair of those, either of those relationships or of the of the children. You know, and again, that's a very different orientation to grandparenting than you might find in kind of more traditional sort of yeah, middle-class families. Yeah. And I think that's a really nice way of just kind of characterizing some of those those distinctive aspects of kinship care that perhaps we don't see in quite the same way in kind of you know more emotionally settled I guess yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice a nice way to phrase it and a nice um, yeah I like that rescue and repair because that's very much yeah that's a a great role of the the grandparent to kind of step in do that rescue and, and try and work on on the repair and if we think more generally about having grandparents involved in your life maybe not in that rescue repair dynamic but I suppose more in that like you say emotionally settled circumstance what does the the research tell us about the value of that relationship between children and their grandparents oh well it, you know it's huge isn't it I think Um, (laughs) and I'm conscious not everyone does get to meet or know their grandparents but certainly from my point of view my grandparents have been a hugely valuable part of my upbringing and of 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 my life my grandma died when I was 16 so over 20 years ago now but I just I still think of her really often and I remember all the advice that she gave me and you know she's she's just a big part of of who I am I think and how I, I identify and you know, a lot of the things I do, I think, you know, you do those things to make your family proud. And yeah, she was kind of a, a core figure in all of that for me, I think. And my granddad, so this is my maternal grandparents, so my, my mum's side particularly, 
you know, he's 91 now. He's still alive. He's still going. He's the kindest, loveliest man ever. <laughs> I've already talked about him once. Really. Average reader of the Daily Mail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he's, he's the loveliest, loveliest guy, you know, and really loves his family. He loves his great-grandchildren, you know. They visited him just this weekend, gone. And they do, I think, you just, you just they're another part of our identities and, and our sense of belonging. And I think that's really important. But, you know, in terms of the research, a lot of that is supported, you know. So there is research around kind of the influence grandparents have on grandchildren. And that's not just young young children, that's that's adolescent grandchildren and people my age, you know, at 36. <laughs> but they do have influence on their interactions, you know, and, and they serve as a kind of a reliable ally very often and a role model, often by discussing behavior and discussing um, how to be in the world they can often act as an intermediary as well as a or a gatekeeper between children and, and parents and again can be an ally or not sometimes <laughs> we know that they support educational development as well in in children and young people so encouraging academic or other successes you know things like helping with homework providing advice and emotional support they might also be involved in sort of enforcing kind of more consistent norms as well and, and be a source of socio-emotional well-being for children and young people and also a source of reassurance of worth. So I think, you know, from those kind of emotional kind of developmental perspectives, we know that involved grandparents are an additional kind of layer of, of support there. They're also what's, what I think is very interesting, and, it, uh, and we've talked a little bit about this, but they're a link to the past as well and Again, kind of an, an acquaintance with ageing that we perhaps don't see or, or, or get in other societal contexts. And then I think finally, obviously, is this kind of financial and material support as well. And what's very interesting in my doctoral research around grandfathers is that they've always sort of said, look, I'm grandparent first and I will do whatever I can to support those grandchildren and sometimes elements of that are financial or material. And again, you know, this is happening more and more, but kind of intergenerational transfers of wealth, for example, to secure housing for the first yeah. time, yeah. you know, those are really core components of, of, of how young people are navigating increasingly constrained and challenging financial circumstances as well. And again, that actually reinforces inequalities, if you think about it, kind of across the spectrum, because those who have wealth to transfer, therefore can invest in the futures of their grandchildren in ways that perhaps less privileged people can do. So, yeah. So, again, there's some interesting sort of dynamics there, I think, around around what they offer. Yeah, no, it's, it's nice to hear you talk about your own personal experiences. And I, I know it was making me think there about, like, I'm close to my grandparents on my mother's side as well, but my grandmother's brother who didn't ever have any children but I'm very close to him and he kind of talks about me and my sister as like his honorary grandchildren that we're very close with and I think like just what you're saying about the link with the past I think it's nice because they're I think it's for me very interesting and fascinating to watch how they interact with small children because it's very different I think and they are, are I find just so imaginative about thinking up things that young kids can do. And I think of a, an example. I, I was out walking with my grandmother's brother. I just call him my great uncle and his partner. And there was a guy coming towards us and he was having a bit of bother with his toddler who didn't want to walk alongside him. And without even batting an eye, my great uncle's partner kind of went over and she was like, right, between this lamppost and this lamppost, you're going to skip and then you're going to jump and then you're going to think of a funny walk to do. And right away, like the kid's off doing it. And I think like that's such a nice example of a like interaction that they, yeah, I think it's just personally, I'm not that imaginative when I interact with my friend's kids. But yeah, it was just really lovely to see that kind of 
I suppose maybe when they were raising their own children or interacting with children that they kind of didn't have technology to lean back on or didn't have other things to do so they had to be quite imaginative and making things fun out of not very much in terms of resources but I always find it's just really interesting to watch them and just how effortless they are sometimes in interacting with kids I think it's it's really lovely to watch. Definitely. And it's, you know, there's some really interesting research about how grandparents are increasingly using technologies as well to interact with grandchildren. And again, you know, learning how to use those technologies, but also to grandparent at a distance, you know, there's an assumption that grandparents are always local. And of course, we live in a globalised society. Very often we, we don't live near our grandparents anymore. And, you know, that was never more apparent than in the pandemic when, you know, we were forced to sort of interact in those in those different ways. So, you know, and again, I think with the, as a sociologist by back, you know, that's my, my background, what's where my expertise lies, really. We were brought up in communities or we, we've got a history of communities where we weren't just parented intensively by our biological parents. We were brought up in communities. And actually, it's since the Industrial Revolution, really, that, that we've started to kind of become more siloed into sort of two parent child families. So it's, again, very interesting to sort of think about those patterns and how that shifted and changed our relationships with different generations within families or within social networks more broadly you know and we're just having to do things in different ways that are reflective of different trends you know like the increase in in use of technology but also kind of things like migration patterns and movement all of those kinds of things so yeah (laughs) it's an important context too I think absolutely yeah and I think it actually can be a nice bonding albeit if I reflect on my own interactions as a 32 year old try to teach my granny once again how to use a phone (laughs) it can be a a nice bonding experience because obviously children are just so adept to using technology now and they, they find it so easy whereas maybe not so much with kind of the older generation but yeah I think that again during the pandemic my great uncle learned how to use whatsapp and he was so proud of himself and every so often I just get a random picture message from him which is either maybe a picture of his face or something he's seen while he's been out a walk or whatever but it's nice to have that if I don't always get a chance to see him in person or because he's a bit further away then yeah it's nice that they're also kind of starting to learn to use technology and can potentially be a nice bonding experience between grandparent and grandchild to teach them how to use that Mm. and I I know that you kind of did touch on this a little bit but I I wonder if we can just chat about it a bit more and and can you talk us through some of the the benefits to children's development of having their their grandparents or other kinship carers in their in their life yeah certainly so you know I think there is a strand of attachment research that suggests that multiple attachments are beneficial to children so again you know the development of that bond beyond their parents you know is is a an additional layer of kind of protectiveness really in some ways and a way in which children are supported to really develop and invest in the skills they need over time so again we know that when grandparents are present that children have fewer emotional problems and they're less likely to get involved in sort of negative behavioral situations there's also evidence that they may help in the development of children's problem-solving skills and be a stabilising force if there's any disruption or, or disagreement should there between parents and children. I've talked about this already, but again, you know, we know that grandparents can be providers of ad hoc childcare for babies and toddlers, and you know, might help parents with children's early learning, but also things like stability around school pickup and drop-offs. You know, when parents working full-time hours, and I don't think we can underestimate the importance of that for for a child's development, really. 
We also know that grandparent involvement improves overall well-being for all concerned and that time spent together has a moderating impact in that regard. And I do want to make the point again, just that I think the pandemic, you know, really did demonstrate how important that role is it's often again taken for granted and one that was taken away you know and parents were singularly raising their children that created a lot of a lot of challenges I think for young people again just anecdotally the first time my little boy he was 18 months when the pandemic happened and the first time we went to a soft play center he had a he screamed the house down he was like it was terrified you know and I think that removal from other people and from communities is having effects that we probably aren't even are only just seeing now really absolutely so you know again I think being part of communities actually is is what what is really important in terms of how people kind of progress and develop over time so it'll be interesting to see how that changes over time yeah lovely thank you and if we kind of shift to talk a little bit more about your research I know you've mentioned your your colleague Karen Hughes as well and the research that or work that you've both done together I know Karen has been involved in a a project called the Intergenerational Exchange Grandparents Social Exclusion and Health Project a three-year project investigating grandparents support and how they care for their grandchildren and I know that you've worked with Karen on that and done some secondary data analysis around that project so would you be able to talk us through some of the main findings of that study and, and what some of the key implications were? Yeah, certainly. And again, I just, uh, I'm conscious I'm speaking on behalf of Karen and, and that team to some extent. So uh, <laughs> again, this is my perspective really on <laughs> on that, but also on the the many, many conversations that Karen and I have been involved with over time. And certainly we've, we've obviously published a book with Talgrave Macmillan called Men, Families and Poverty on the basis of some of that data. So <laughs> some of these reflections are are rooted in knowledge of that study. But actually, I think, you know, one of the core findings of, of that study was the high rates of grandparents involvement investment in the lives of their grandchildren so intergenerational exchange was conducted on a a low-income estate and actually the project built out of a a methodological study trying to engage with communities that might be seen as, as, as challenging for researchers to access and it was through that and through conversations with those families that the significant role of of grandparent kinship carers you know both formally and informally were really acknowledged i've already talked about kind of that rescue repair type form of of grandparenting and again that's really where that concept came from so the grandparents who were interviewed for that study you know were often providing supplemental care and also sort of saw themselves as as firefighting crises on a on a, a regular basis and the reason that they were sort of experiencing those kind of crisis moments or kind of tipping points very regularly actually is is that they were experiencing high rates of uncertainty and that was associated with the limited resources across families but then also in place as well in, in that low income estate and what what the grandparents in those situations really argued was that planning for the future was just almost impossible so one of them talks about you know I, I can plan for tomorrow but I can't plan plan for Christmas you know so the sort of time horizons were really compressed by by those impoverished circumstances Despite those constraints, though, they were involved grandparents, you know, so they were actively involved in supporting the grandchildren, bringing them into their homes, ensuring they attended school regularly, keeping them off the streets and away from risky places, teaching them right from wrong, you know, very taking a disciplinary approach, supporting the parents of the grandchildren. They were also managing really complex and challenging relationships with health and social care providers to keep the grandchildren in their homes. And again, this links back to to kinship care as a very much a, a regulated relationship. 
many of them talked about stepping in to keep their children away from the attention of what they called the social or social services as much as there are kind of positive relationships to be had and trusting relationships to be had with social services there's also a quite defensive relationship there as well you know and again low-income family life is very much shaped by being surveillanced and and governed and and subject to certain forms of governance and and they were very aware of that and had ways of navigating that if you like several grandparents talked about not wanting the kids taken off by adult by social services so yeah, you know, really what they're trying to do is kind of hold families together. Yeah. <laughs> and again, there's a huge amount of work involved and invested in in that kind of work. So yeah, I think this is one of the most significant sort of studies, if you like, uh, qualitative longitudinal studies on grandparent kinship care. I should mention it was also qualitative longitudinal. So the families were followed over time and that allowed insights and access to the stories of, of over 300 families, I think it was. Wow and their circumstances, how they were navigating these complex situations. But as I say, core to all of this was the investments of those grandparents in in their grandchildren's futures and, and lives. Our secondary analysis work has been much more on the grandfathers in those circumstances. That's partly because when I met Karin, we met at a conference in Prague in 2013, and I was really interested in low-income fathering at that time. And I'd also been involved in an evaluation of an advice and advocacy line for the family rights group and male kinship care was ringing that advice line and asking for advice and and legal advice and support around how to sustain their relationships with their grandchildren and again, get the resources they needed. Much of the kind of analysis that the intergenerational exchange team had done was on the grandmothers, but there was a huge wealth of data and conversation with the men as well. It's really interesting because one of the men kind of later kind of stepped away from the study when he sort of perceived it wasn't about him anymore. When it became clearer that the project was more about grandparents, he felt that was kind of less relevant to him. Whereas prior to that, the study had been looking at kind of economic histories of the place and, you know, and he was able to talk a lot more about his employment histories. And we haven't really talked about this much today, but there is an element where grandparenting is very much gendered, uh, Mm. is seen as synonymous with, with grandmothers. But again, the men in these families, you know, were playing these really significant roles, either in supporting their their partners, their wives, or being the main caregiver and becoming the primary responsibility uh, or having the primary responsibility for their grandchildren in ways that we might not assume men do. And again, I think in terms of the way we look at data as researchers, you know, we look at men as fathers, or we look at men who are involved in economic provisioning. And actually, these men are provisioning for their families because they're accessing welfare and support as kinship carers. And that again, often goes is is often invisible, I think, in how we, we think about and talk about men in families. So on the basis of all that analysis, again, we've, we've kind of published a book on that. And we look at some of the sort of trials and challenges of adjusting to these new arrangements. We look at how, again, men sort of interact with families, but also beyond families on these estates and just really demonstrate the work involved in being in a low income family that can be thought of as care, but also, you know, is about actually sustaining and surviving these very violent impoverished contexts so yeah there's uh, please do go and read that there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of material in there yeah no it sounds fascinating and well definitely we can we can link to it on the website because it does sound like yeah really worthwhile a really worthwhile read and I, I, you were just talking about it there actually that in terms of I suppose when we talk about 
grandparenting we kind of it is synonymous with grandmothers and and more that kind of mother in perspective but and I know that you you are the lead right now on the following young fathers further project but and we've talked about it just I touched on it a few times your PhD your your doctoral research was focused more on grandfather and, and identity so yeah can you you tell us a little bit more about that and and some of the findings from that and I know it's obviously a very large piece of work so I'm sure as best you can summarize some of the findings from that work yeah certainly and yeah as a caveat it was published just when the last census <laughs> took place <laughs> but I'm sure you know I think a lot of it's still very relevant today but yeah so basically the sort of thread of my of interest or expertise really that I've developed in the last decade and, and a bit more has been an interest in men's care responsibilities in families over time and across the life course so I've had this kind of separate interest in kind of a feminist perspective on men in care why why do we need to make sense of that why is it important to understand that and what does it mean more broadly for society and then also this kind of temporal perspective as well so you know how do these things evolve and change over time you know I see the world in a kind of processual way so nothing's ever one thing things change over time so um I was doing my undergraduate degree believe it or not, and and did a focus group with my granddad and some of his friends. <laughs> and literally, it was, it was lovely, actually, sort of cups of tea talking about, yeah, tell me about being a granddad. And, you know, I'd observed in sort of existing literature at the time, particularly around men and masculinities, that older men were an area of absence. We weren't really theorising their lives or thinking about how masculinities might change over time. And that was kind of the theoretical frameworks I was engaging with to make sense of what it is that, that men were doing in families. And yeah, that built into a PhD study that originally was going to look at intergenerational relationships between men. And I was going to research granddads, dads and their sons. But what I found was, was that older men were much easier to recruit. Really? <laughs> Not surprisingly, because they were retired, the men that yeah. I was engaging with, they had more time, were very surprised by the project, you know, and I think that was a really interesting finding in and of itself. You know, they were like, no one asks us about being a granddad. They, they want to speak to my wife usually. And it was very interesting going to their houses and, and chatting with them as well, because their wives would sort of hover around and I felt a bit bad about it. And I'd be like, well, we're just, just researching grandfatherhood at this case. And yeah. eventually I'd, sort of, I'd, invi- I'd invite them in <laughs> because they wanted to talk about being a grandma as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's an important role for them. And again, that demonstrated to me that, that this is something that's of sociological interest, you know, and it tells us something about the world. Anyway, so yeah, that was a fascinating study in the sense that these men were really committed to their family lives. And, you know, that might not seem like a surprising finding but again the way in which we frame men is often around economic providing and very interestingly I'd do an open question in my interviews and say tell me about yourself and a lot of the men talked about work first yeah even though the study was about family and grandfathering but the biggest thing I think for me was that they they really valued their time with their grandchildren they recognized that they had a lot more time and energy for their grandchildren than they'd had when they were parents and they really valued that there was a really interesting gendered element to their sort of discussions. So they identified more as kind of the fun, playful Butlin's red coat. <laughs> and a few of them sort of said, I shouldn't say this to a young woman, but <laughs> you know, um, my wife does all of the sort of domestic kind of stuff, the yeah. crafting, she'll cook dinner, but I'll be more of the, the fun clown-like, you know, <laughs> playful granddad. And so you could see this gender division of labour over time, which was really interesting. But ultimately, they were committed to providing support and care on behalf of their own children. 
as I've mentioned earlier, they observed changes in parenting. They saw their sons being really hands-on in ways that they never felt they could be. And they wanted to spend that time learning and, and investing in the care of their grandchildren in, in new ways. So for most of them, it was a really positive experience, I would say. But it was that that kind of then got me interested in all you know, these are very kind of leisure pleasure type forms of grandparenting. They want to be there. They don't want to interfere. Yeah. But what happens in, in situations where there is impoverishment or, or where they are caring more directly for their grandchildren? And the evaluation I did with Family Rights Group was the start of that. And then I ended up doing a project, Men, Poverty and Lifetimes of Care, where I did interviews with male kinship carers. And that's where I became familiar with the Timescapes project that Karin led, Intergenerational Exchange. And from there, we've built a big body of, of research and scholarship around around how men engage in sustaining families over time in poverty, you know, and, and they're often doing that in in interaction with women. I think in order to understand women's impoverishment and welfare, we need to know what their relationships are like with men as well. And that's kind of the, the piece of the puzzle that we've been trying to address, really, through those projects over time. And grandparenting is, is key to sustaining families. You know, it's a core part a core but often taken for granted part of of how we manage <laughs> yeah no definitely and yeah I really strongly agree with with everything that you were, were saying and I think from a, a personal perspective doing similar work around parenting it's normally kind of a lot of what we know is through is through mum and is through mothers and dads are often their information about dads is often gathered kind of third party perspective so which is obviously not not helpful and, and even through some of my own PhD research and I'm really fortunate managed to get a near enough 50-50 split of mums and dads to talk about parenting which was fascinating but again when calling up dads to speak to them they'd be like oh I can pass you over to my wife or to my partner that's like they'll and I'm like no 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 I want to talk to you <laughs> which was was nice and like you say kind of similar to your research I think kind of tells you a lot in itself that that was immediately where they were going to pass pass over to their their partner or their their wife so yeah no it was really interesting just to hear you talk about all of your work and you mentioned the timescapes project there that Karen was involved in and Actually, one of the the final reports from the Timescapes project that I, I had a, a read of and a really interesting quote was, a great deal of the support, care and nurturing provided by grandparents is hidden from view, which I think is, we've talked about that quite a lot today, actually, that it's just kind of taken for granted or, yeah, we don't really think about the, the complexity and layers of support that are offered by grandparents. But how, this is quite a, a very big question for you to answer, but how can we begin to work towards fixing that? How can we begin to work towards actually kind of celebrating it, championing it, making sure people really do think about it and bringing it more into view to bring and showcase all the wonderful support grandparents provide for families? There's, there's several ways, I think, which might not surprise you. <laughs> and, and one way, of course, is, is more research, you know, and uh, as a researcher, I'm you know, trying to stay in the job. And beyond that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's research has a core role to play in, in raising the visibility of any aspect of the social world that holds us together as, as communities and as families. I think it's important for understanding what works, for whom, for when and why, as a basis for effective policy and practice, you know, as, as a core thing. As much as we live families in or ostensibly private ways, ultimately families do interact with the state and that's whether you're resourced or, or not. That's whether you're supporting with childcare on an ad hoc basis, but actually saving the state a huge amount of money or, or doing something more formal and caring for children in child protection contexts. 
you know, again, I think in terms of kinship care in particular, but also grandparenting, I think multi-perspective views, you know, of children, of kinship carers or of grandparents themselves. And then of those involved in making decisions about families, you know, is a really important way in which we can understand those processes and then develop policy and practice in an effective evidence-based way. And again, I think that's that's really core. We can make a lot of assumptions, but as we know, our assumptions don't necessarily always reflect or tell us everything we need to know. So in terms of professionals, you know, I think it's crucial that grandparents are seen as part of the wider family dynamic in general. And that they seek to bring the grandparents into support for parents and children as a, as a potential resource. You know, again, it's about kind of raising awareness that grandparents are a resource to families and then, you know, engaging with them in a way that then they feel able to provide support. Particularly in terms of kinship care, you know, there are challenges with special guardianship orders, for example, because they the financial resource attached to those are often time limited. Yeah. There's an assumption that a grandparent will have some financial security for maybe a two-year period and it varies in different local authorities and then that they'll just find a job again and that they'll just become employed again. And, you know, some of the granddads in my study were asked, how are you going to care for your, this grandchild in two years' time when the funding runs out? And when they're in their mid-50s, already nearly at retirement age, that's a very difficult prospect and a very difficult challenge for them. So again, I think, you know, more thought about state intervention and the extent to which that can keep families together is really important. My worry my slight worry is is that if we don't talk about these things that families become increasingly more responsible for financing what is a very challenging sort of set of circumstances um, we don't necessarily have the conditions in, in terms of policy and practice to support people to be on leave to provide the kinds of care and the levels of care required another of the grandfathers I interviewed you know his grandson was separated from his sisters when their mum died he was put into a care home, so spent a lot of time with lots of other young men in that system and came out of the care system and was placed back with his sisters and, and his granddad. And his granddad said, you know, I get nothing for this. I get no financial support to care for my grandson. Yeah. Um, he's engaging in criminal activity. He's grieving. He's traumatised from being separated from his sisters. And I've just been left to manage it, you know, and his engagements end, ended up being more with the police than anyone else. Yeah. You know, he was on a trajectory to go into jail, basically. You know, so these are very, again complex cases where there's very limited state support and engagement other than where it might be punitive i think also there's there's a place for more general activism as well so there's some really you know really visible campaigns and movements at the moment particularly around childcare i'm thinking of the work by pregnant and screwed for example you know grandparents are very much a significant part of the care infrastructure yeah. and I think perhaps reframing them in that way or reframing what they offer in that way could be a really helpful way in terms of encouraging state interventions in ways that still enable people to live their lives the way they want to. It's just looking at latest figures on on sort of what grandparents do save the economy and it's 7.3 billion pound a year wow <laughs> you know that they're enabling women to work for example and it, i say women because you know it is often women who are the primary caregivers and you know increasingly because of the expense of childcare, are having to not work because it's not affordable and uh-huh. it's not worth working even though work carries with it a whole range of, of, of more important things than finance as well around you know being involved in, in creating value and you know being invested in in your own self and personal development but again we have to be careful because that's unpaid labor 
So we need to think about that, I think, critically from a policy and practice perspective and think about how we might viably fund that or at least support that without, you know, intervening too much in in family lives. I will also just point out about in relation to kinship care as well, there are movements to advocate for a dedicated national kinship care strategy at the moment in policy and also an update to relevant statutory guidance. So what's being advocated for, particularly by charities like Kinship, which was formerly Grandparents Plus, was actionable policy commitments to address what is, you know, becoming an urgent problem. So eight in 10 kinship carers are saying they're not getting the support they need from the local authority. And over a third of those have said they might have to stop caring for their child as a, as a result. So again, we need a cohesive national strategy that renders grandparents and their roles more visible and addresses that broader spectrum of possible relationships that grandparents and investments that grandparents might make. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I think there's, like you say, there's a lot of work to be done. But yeah, I think all those suggestions, hopefully through through research and support and policy and practice change can can really push that forward. I know you mentioned a couple of, of charities there and advocacy groups, but is there any resources that you would like to highlight for grandparents and for kinship carers? I, I know it probably will vary by local authority, but if there's maybe any kind of more national organisations we can signpost to that anyone listening might be able to access, it'd be great. Yeah, I think the main ones that I'm aware of are, are kinship. As I say, uh, Grandparents Plus was, it was originally Grandparents Plus and it's been since rebranded. I do recommend the Family Rights Group as well. They have access to loads of open access resources for grandparents. And then their advice and advocacy line, again, you know, our evaluation demonstrated that it's a really important resource and lifeline for lots of grandparents. And again, it's there just to, to talk, to have someone to talk to about this as well, you know, in a situation where very often it's an invisible situation. There's also the NACCC based in Nottingham. They've got some advice for grandparents who are helping navigate situations where there's been parental separation. Again, particularly paternal grandparents can be quite vulnerable to losing access to their children, or grandchildren, because grandparents have no rights in that regard. And again, because of the way families are, are gendered. So that's another one that I'd recommend. But again, it is also just worth, you know, having a look on online, looking at local authority resources. You might find there are lots of informal groups where grandparents can meet with, with other grandparents. And I know from my research, that's been a lifeline for some grandparents, especially when they're providing sort of more extensive childcare. So it is worth having a look there. Excellent. Thank you very much, Anna. And and finally, I think you've, to be honest, you've just outlined a lot of work that you've still got to do. <laughs> but what are you currently working on on right now? So I'm currently the director of a UK research and innovation funded study called Following Young Fathers Further. So I've actually kind of, in terms of my sort of empirical focus, I've switched <laughs> the other way. So <laughs> yeah. older men and, and now, I've <laughs> now I'm researching young dads. So yeah. that's young men aged 25 and under when they first have a child or experience a pregnancy. It might surprise, might, I don't know whether it'll surprise you or not actually, but you know, there are quite clear connections between kinship care and and teenage pregnancy you know and that's something again that Karen and I have been exploring but often you know kinship carers are stepping in in situations where teenage pregnancy occurs because of some of the challenges that that young people and and teenage teenagers face when they become parents they do often have to rely on their grandparents and that might be sharing their house still and raising a child in their grandparents home or it just might, again, be a kind of an informal arrangement. But either way, you know, particularly in low-income families where you have closely layered generations, the chances are that, that a grandparent will be involved in some way. What 
we have found in past research is that grandparents are actually treated as grandparents when they're actually still mothering <laughs> their child who's also had a child. That creates all kinds of tensions around yeah. how they're being spoken to and in what way and what kind of resources and rights that enables them as a parent and or a grandparent. <laughs> so again, some really complex dynamics there. Um, but what we found or are finding in following your father's further research is, is just how important a, a stable, secure family life is for, for those young people in sustaining relationship in the lives of their grandchildren. And grandparents can be gatekeepers and gate openers in terms of whether they can sustain their relationships and be there for their kids. So there are perhaps not obvious connections, but but connections are certainly there. So yeah, do feel free to follow up on that study on the Following Your Father's Further website. And we also have a Twitter account as well, if you'd like to see updates there. Excellent. Oh, well, Anna, honestly, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really fascinating conversation. So thank you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.